How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? I'm Katrina Ingram, host of the AI for Society Dialogues, a podcast that explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. As artificial intelligence impacts society in so many ways, it is raising many ethical questions, from issues around privacy, to bias in data, to discussions around equity and inclusion. I'm Eleni Strulia, Director of AI for Society, a signature area at the University of Alberta. Dr. Nidhi Hekday is our guest today. She's an associate professor at the University of Alberta, whose work on differential privacy is helping shed some light on key ethical concerns. Here's our host, Katrina Ingram, in a wide-ranging conversation about AI and ethics with Dr. Hegday. Dr. Hegday, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So before we jump in and talk about AI, I noticed that you spent some time in France and that you work for Technicolor. And most people will think of the film industry when they hear the term Technicolor, but what they may not realize is that this is a company that's been around for 100 years. And it continues to do a lot of really interesting work in the film and broadcast industry. And I'm just wondering what types of projects were you involved with in your time there? And also, did you meet any celebrities? (laughs) Um, So Technicolor, um, the reason it was, uh, the company was based in France is because it bought a French company called Thompson. And Thompson um, made uh, home gateways, Wi-Fi routers and gateways. Um, And I was working in communications and networking at the time. So when Technicolor bought Thompson, they um, created a created some research labs, and I was in the Paris research lab. So we worked on a variety of different projects, some related to the network uh, business that they had, um, and some related to uh, the film business, but really from a technology point of view. So we worked on things like recommendation algorithms, for example. But unfortunately, we never got to meet celebrities. They keep the glitz and glamour away from us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's too bad. And you've recently joined the U of A Computing Sciences Department. What made you decide to take your career into academia? Well, I spent many years in industry research. Uh, I worked at, I think, four different companies by now um, with and all these companies had varying levels of um, research in terms of research independence, uh, research direction, and scientific direction. I came to a point where I really enjoyed doing all of the research, uh, looking at a lot of different problems, but I really wanted to focus on a few things that I felt were important to me, that I felt would have an impact today, that I wanted to go a little bit more deeply in, and I couldn't do that in the industry. So this was a great university to join because there's so many experts here. So I was really excited to join this uh, faculty here. Wonderful. Well, we're going to talk about your research um, in privacy specifically, but let's start out with the big picture. What do you see as the most pressing issues when it comes to ethics and artificial intelligence? So by ethics and artificial intelligence, people mean a lot of things. So this includes privacy. Uh, It includes issues of fairness and bias where people might, um, the outcomes of 
artificial intelligence systems might be biased or be unfair to certain populations. Uh, it could mean transparency. What exactly is this company doing with our data, for instance? Um, explainability. Um, what exactly are these algorithms doing? How are they taking this data and then outputting an outcome? Responsibility is, is the data owner responsible about the data that it owns and, and stores. So there are a lot of these issues that are involved in, in AI and ethics. And I think they're all important. Many of them are approachable very specifically from a technological, mathematical point of view. And many of them are more sort of in the regulatory or public policy domain. Yeah, and that's one of the questions I have uh, about this area when it comes to AI. I I'm wondering, you know, is AI special? Is it unique in terms of the ethical challenges that it presents versus other technologies? Um, and if so, in, in what ways is it unique? You could say that it's another just it's just another technology and and you know a lot of technology over time in in history whenever we've had new technology it has always been something groundbreaking and it needed a different lens that we didn't have before and that's the same thing with AI it needs a different lens that we don't have before and that's because it's unique in a way that it has the ability to combine a lot of different possibly disparate data uh, and outcome something that might take a human, you know, years to do. So it does it in a very efficient and automated way. And that makes it unique because we're not entirely in control of everything that happens between that input and output. Um, there's a lot of things in that path between the input and output that are automated that AI algorithms have learned, they've learned to discover some pattern. So there are things to be mindful of because the outcome may not be exactly what we expect and what we prepare for. Right. Well, let's dig into some of these issues in a bit more detail. Um, a lot of your work has focused on the issue of privacy, which is one of the big concerns that's typically raised when we start to discuss data use. How do you think about privacy, both at a personal level and as an AI researcher? So I, bo both personally and as a researcher, I think privacy um, is an important issue. I think a lot of times it isn't given the attention it deserves because the use of data and the ubiquity of data, the way data is used, AI all around us, it sort of crept up on us. It's not like there was one point where we said, okay, now there's too much data, now we need to be private. It sort of happened slowly over time with search algorithms and then with algorithms that help you find your way in a city, algorithms that recommend books to you. It sort of happened slowly and then data sort of just became everywhere and everything you did was generate data. And every, almost every service that you're using today is because of some algorithm that has used data. So it has kind of crept up on us. And that's why I think a lot of people don't recognize the uh, importance of it. Personally, for me, privacy is very important because I do want to use these services. I do want books and movies recommended to me or, or you know, an easy path on a map shown to me. But I don't want that to be used to infer other things about me, like maybe my political preferences. And this is uh, something that I'm personally mindful of, and I, and I think people should be more careful about, is what can be inferred about you that you don't intend for when you allow your own data to be used. And as a researcher, it's, it's a very intriguing question, and I'm very interested in it, because it's not obvious how to correct for this. 
first of all, what is privacy? Do we have a proper definition of privacy that's mathematical and rigorous that we can check and verify? So there is a, a definition of privacy that was proposed a few years ago called differential privacy by Cynthia Dwork and her colleagues. And that has been the definition that's most widely accepted by researchers. It doesn't necessarily apply to all kinds of data situations, all kinds of AI and machine learning situations, but it's something that's accepted. Once we have that definition of privacy, how do we make sure we achieve that level of privacy? Are there different levels of privacy? Um, how do we uh, modify our current machine learning and AI systems to make them private? And can we do that by design? Can we do that from the bottom up when we build these to begin with? So these are all um, you know, intriguing research questions. Uh, and, and this is why privacy is one of my uh, topics of interest in, as research. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic, and you've painted a really full picture, both from a personal level and the tension that we feel in wanting to use these services and wanting to allow them to use a certain level of our data, but also having concerns about where to strike the balance. You brought up this term differential privacy, and I'm just wondering if you might be able to unpack that for us and, and define that a little bit in a non-technical way. Yeah, so differential privacy really... Um at the very basic level, it's a notion of plausible deniability, uh, meaning that you're able to deny whether you're in a database or not um, based on the outcome uh, from a machine learning algorithm that uses that data set or database. Um, what it really means is that if I were to take a data set, so this is the actual definition of differential privacy. I take a data set, I remove one user from it, um, and if I apply my machine learning algorithm to these two data sets separately, then the outcomes from these two should not differ too much. And what that means is that if they don't differ too much, that means that an observer can't tell whether you were in a data set or not, so they can't infer anything about you. Mathematically, what that really means is that the outcomes are in pr some probabilistic way close to each other probabilistic because these algorithms are randomized algorithms, and that's how they achieve differential privacy. Randomizing means that somewhere along the path, you're adding some random noise. Um, for example, it could be at the source, so the data that goes into the algorithm could be perturbed in some way. Um, the output could be perturbed in some way before it's released, or somewhere in the training of that machine learning algorithm, you introduce perturbation. Now, these are random perturbations, that, but that doesn't mean that they're uncalibrated or, or in the colloquial sense of random, just randomly put there. Um, what it means is that it's noise that follows a probability distribution. And the dis this distribution and the parameters of this distribution are calibrated according to the data set at question, the machine learning task that we're looking at. So it's really finely calibrated noise that's added so that the outcome is private and yet it gives us uh, some usable outcome. Of course, nothing is for free. So the trade-off here is that the accuracy um, or utility of this machine learning algorithm, uh, the accuracy of the outcome, takes a hit when you add this random noise. So there is a trade-off between privacy and efficiency or accuracy or utility. Right. Um, and there's that choice to be made is how private do I want things to be and how accurate do I want them to be. So a lot of the research th these days is really about how do I calibrate this noise in a way that this trade-off is not that steep, meaning that I can get 
a really efficient outcome that's also private. Um, so it's really about lowering that loss due to privacy. Right. And is that some of the work that you've been doing? I, I noticed that you have a number of papers on privacy and fairness. They have these very impressive sounding, highly technical sounding titles. I'm wondering if you can maybe kind of break that down a little bit for us and talk a little bit more about your work specifically in the area of privacy. So like I said, privacy, if you're looking at differential privacy, it's really about adding this perturbation in the system so that inferences can't be made from the outcome. This is fairly straightforward for a, a let's say, simple task like a classification task. Uh, you would add some sort of vector-based noise to uh, either the input or um, somewhere in the optimization of the training process. But when you look at other machine learning algorithms, it's not quite so straightforward. So for instance, very recently, we looked at reinforcement learning. And in reinforcement learning, you don't have a fixed data set that you use, you train the model, and then you have an output. You're sort of interacting. The model is interacting with the data. There's a sequence-based decision-making happening. The, there's a testing with an action, there's, a, there's an outcome, and then a refinement of the policy and so on. So it's not clear here what, where we should be adding noise and what it is that we should be protecting. So one work that we did, for example, was let's say a reinforcement learning algorithm is released. We may not want to know how that policy was learned because it might give away some information about what's important to the designer of that policy and what it's learning from the data. So we would want to add noise to what's called a reward function in, in reinforcement learning, which is a feedback signal. And it's not straightforward to do that when, when you're looking at functions because you can't just add vector noise to the output. It's not the same as adding functional noise to the function itself. So that's one thing we did, which was different than the standard differential privacy, which is look into how we can add functional noise instead of just an actual vector-valued noise. Another thing that we did a few years ago is we looked at recommender algorithms um, where the data was distributed. So let's say you had your device and you kept your data on your device instead of sending it to some centralized authority. Typical recommender algorithms, the centralized authority has the entire data set and it looks at all of the users and what they've liked and not liked and then makes recommendations. But if the data was distributed and you wanted to keep it private, um, how would you do that? So that's something we looked at a few years ago where we want to look at uh, a recommender that uh, probes the distributed data sets to get answers that will then allow it to make recommendations. And we want to make sure that these probes are not inferring something that users want to keep private. So that was something new at the time. And we also looked at it from a different lens of information theory. We looked at, you know, how much information exists in the system before we add perturbation and how much information exists after we add perturbation. That was another metric that we used to measure privacy. So, so these are some different things that we did um, that's different from the standard differential privacy methods. Um, and I think there are a lot more that are open. Um, for instance, what if data is in a sequence generated in time? Uh, at some point, you're going to run out of what's called your privacy budget because you've added as much noise as you can. Um, so what happens then? Are you going to 
uh, impose that data be deleted after a certain point? Are you going to have to change the way you uh, define privacy now? So these are all open questions that, um, that people are looking at. These are really interesting challenges. I'm not sure if it's because we're recording a, a podcast, but when you talk about adding noise, I keep thinking of white noise. I keep thinking of if, if we were to keep our conversation private and some white noise was happening in the room that kept what we were talking about private from, uh, from kind of the greater populace um, hearing it. How does it actually play out when you're adding noise into your data set? What, it, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. So for instance, let's say you're adding noise to an output and let, let's keep it simple and look at um, statistical databases where que- queries are things like what's the average height of males in this, in this data set. Um, adding noise to the output would mean that you have an answer, which is the average age of males in this data set, and you add a value, which is drawn from a probability distribution to that, and you output that sum. So, so this probability distribution and its parameters are calibrated according to, for instance, the range of values that are possible for ages in this data set. So if I were to remove one person, it might change the average age by a certain amount. And that would be a value that I would use in determining how much noise to add. So for instance, if the average age wouldn't change much if you removed one person, that the amount of noise you would need to add is not very high. But if the average age could change by say 100 years, then you would have to add a lot of noise so that people couldn't differentiate between who was taken out of the database. So that amount of noise is calibrated according to the query that you're asking actually. Um, And then that output you output the age plus the noise. So maybe the actual age is uh, 52, and you draw from a probability distribution, which is symmetric, so you could be adding or subtracting. Um, And maybe based on uh, what's optimal for this data set, you might output something like 53. But then you wouldn't be outputting 53 every time that query is asked, because that wouldn't make sense. So you would be adding uh, a different noise every time a query is asked. Because this probability distribution is is just that, it's a probability distribution. It gives you a value with a certain probability. Very interesting. I'm going to move on and ask you a bit about some other um, techniques that I've heard you mention in past talks. So one is K-anonymity. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? So K-anonymity is something that was Uh, It was one of the first privacy definitions or algorithms that was developed. Um, And it came about from the work of Latanya Sweeney. And many years ago, she was one of the first people to alert the field about privacy, about inferring information about people by combining two different data sets. So I believe the the situation was that the... um, state of Massachusetts wanted to release a healthcare data set in order to, I can't remember what the purpose was. I think it was for something to do with the health insurance industry. And the governor of Massachusetts said, this is completely safe. We're going to anonymize it. We're going to remove people's names from it. And it's completely safe. So Latanya Sweeney, what she did is she took this publicly released data set. She bought the voter registration data, voter rolls, which, you know, apparently cost $10 or something like that in the U.S. And then she correlated to the two data sets, and she was able to identify specific people. 
including the governor of Massachusetts. Um, and so that opened the eyes of a lot of people to these questions of privacy. Um, and in fact, she so, showed something that a lot of people were surprised at, which is based on census data and only three features, you could identify someone more than 85% of the time. So looking at the gender, uh, zip code, um, and age, I believe, or age range, one of the other features, you could identify someone um, more than 85% of the time. So that was very concerning. So one of the methods to privatize data sets that she proposed is something called K-anonymity. And it basically means that you can be anonymous or you could be confounded in a group of K people. So what you would do is what it consists of is you take the data set and you modify it in a way that everyone can be confounded with K minus one other people. That could mean you remove entire columns. Maybe if the gender column is too re revealing, you remove that column. Uh, you may change the values from specific values to ranges. So instead of having the actual age, you may put a range in there. So there are certain mechanisms that you can use to render a data set K-anonymous, meaning that every individual can be confounded with at least K minus one other individuals. So this is one of the first methods of privacy that was um, that was proposed, which worked great for a while, but of course it had a lot of weaknesses, one of them being that there wasn't a rigorous way of developing an algorithm to make a data set K-anonymous. Some of the heuristic methods could possibly not guarantee K-anonymity, or if they do, um, the, the time that it takes to 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 render the data set canonymous is, is too large or not scalable with the size of the data set. And there weren't, wasn't really a clean mathematical way of identifying that this data set is canonymous. And this is why the differential privacy definition, which came later on, um, was uh, accepted uh, so well by the researchers. Right. I love that story. I think it's a really powerful story and really shocking when you uh, describe that literally three pieces of data can um, can identify people up to, you know, 85% accuracy. It's kind of, you know, it just makes us pause for a moment and really think about that. I also want to ask about another term, which I think might be a newer term. It's federated learning. I'm wondering what that's about and how it relates to privacy. So federated learning is the idea that instead of having a centralized database that holds all of the data that a machine learning model will, will train on, devices will hold their own data. So uh, there's a set of distributed data sources. Now that could be as specific as someone's phone. And this is, I think, the uh, scenario that Google had in mind when, when they proposed feder federated learning was to use the mobile phones as the data storage units where people would store their data. So the training of a machine learning model, instead of happening in a centralized agent, would happen at these individual distributed devices. There would be a centralized agent that would uh, update parameters of the machine learning model and share the initial machine learning model with all devices. So what happens is that the each device will receive um, the actual model um, or classification task or whatever it may be from the centralized agent. It would train that model on its own local data. 
and then it would send an update to the centralized agent. So this could be a, the parameter set of that machine learning model that it trained, that it learned. It would send those parameters to the centralized agent, and all of the devices would do the same. And the centralized agent would then aggregate all of these parameters in some way. It could be average, uh, averaging, for example. And then it would have a model centralized model that was built on all of these distributed data sources without having the data itself. So this was a method that was proposed to keep data separate. It's not necessarily private because that information that's shared, the parameter values that are shared, could still be used to infer certain properties of some of the data. Um, so it could still be used to infer preferences, for example, that you may not want revealed in this scenario. Um, so it's not exactly private. It does separate the data and it goes some way towards privacy, but it's not exactly private in the sense that we've come to know privacy to be, which is differential privacy. Um, but there, there are uh, people now working on federated learning to make it private. In one case, one example might be, um, as I said earlier, you would add some random perturbation. So each device, for instance, might add a random perturbation to that parameter value before sending it to the centralized agent. Mm -hmm. Again, this amount of noise would be calibrated so that the end result is private. Yeah, it sounds like there's challenges, regardless of which method you, you choose, there are certain challenges or certain trade-offs that need to be made. I want to move on a little bit and talk about the issue of consent, which is something that's, you know, integral to the concept of privacy. And when it comes to this um, idea of reusing data, especially these large data sets that we've gathered from the internet, the idea of meaningful consent really gets challenged as people, for the most part, sign these terms of use and uh, don't really read them. And if they did read them, I'm sure they wouldn't necessarily understand them. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we might address uh, this issue of meaningful consent when it comes to the reuse of a large data sets. Yeah, it becomes very difficult. This is not an easy problem. Um, asking consent is not the end all. And, and like you said, people don't necessarily know what they're consenting to, and they end up consenting anyway, because if they don't consent, they don't get that service that they're really looking for. Um, usually when you, for example, when you download an app, you have a set of terms that you need to agree. If you don't agree, you don't get to use the app. There's no level of app that you can use based on the level of consent that you have, right? You can't say, for instance, I don't want my name to be used and I don't want my location to be used, but everything else is okay. You know, it's just sort of all or nothing kind of consent. And that's troublesome because people don't really have a choice. Um, they can't really say no because, hey, everybody's using TikTok, I should use it too, you know? <laughs> so people don't really have a choice. And then it's not clear actually whether data owners seek consent again if the use of the data changes. This really depends. Like if it's if it's an app, for example, there'll be an update and you'll have new terms that you have to agree to and usually people don't pay attention. But if it's a large institution using your data, like a place online where you buy items, um, a banking facility, a healthcare facility, it's not necessarily universally clear what consent means in terms of reuse of the data for other purposes. And it really depends on where this data is stored and whose data it is. In some countries, these consent and reuse of data is very 
closely followed up upon, um, and in some countries it's not. So it's really, uh, it's not universal. That's that's the one issue, whereas apps and other things, that services that people use do cross boundaries. And it's not clear. And I'm not really sure that companies are clear about it either. Yeah, it's a challenging issue. And as you were describing that scenario, I was thinking about a form that I filled out yesterday. And one of the pieces of information it wanted was my birth date. And I wound up filling in the information because I really wanted to sign up for this particular service. And there was no opt out for that one piece of information that I didn't feel comfortable sharing. So I think it's a huge issue and one that we're all grappling with at some level. I want to talk a bit more about data and how we use data in the application of of developing AI and and other issues um, that might not be directly related to privacy, but are issues nonetheless. And so these are things like perhaps not having enough data or having poor or incorrectly labeled data. Can you talk about how those issues can lead to problems in the development of an AI system? All of these issues, not having the right data, not having enough data and poorly labeled data are are concerns. Um, Not having the right data so, so lo- the problem with a lot of these is that you can't tell from the outcome that there was a problem with the data. You have the outcome that you have. The, the machine learning algorithm has learned the pattern that it has learned and it has given you the outcome. But you can't tell that, oh, this is actually a flawed outcome because it didn't have the right data or it didn't have uh, it, or it had mislabeled data. Um, and having the right data is an important issue. One example for exa- is when I moved back to Canada from Europe, uh, I was looking at buying a house and the credit score ma- matters a lot. Not just a house, even for getting a credit card. Um, I had to use a credit score and I had very low credit score. And they would only give me a card that had a very low daily limit. Um, I had to go to the bank to pay my rent, things like that. Oh, and the wow. reason is that I was seen as someone without a credit history, although I spent, you know, 18, 20 years in, in Europe and had good credit rating there. So the systems here didn't have the right data. They didn't have my data from my actual past. They only had Canadian history data. So they were making this decision on me without the right data. And and you can imagine that this can be very disastrous for many people who are looking for loans or, or just, you know, uh, getting a credit card even. Um, so not having the right data is an important issue. And it's, like I said, it, it's not discernible from the output. So it's really up to the, the designers, uh, the developers of the algorithm to make sure that they're using the right data. Not having enough data is a problem also because you're training a machine learning model, which supposedly only gets better with more data. So if you don't have enough data, the algorithm basically has not seen enough cases to be able to make correct uh, labels for the outcome. And this is especially important with differential privacy and, and many privacy algorithms, because as you add perturbation, you're lowering the accuracy while you're ensuring privacy. But if the data set is really large, if you have many users in the data set, then this hit on accuracy is very low because you're adding very little uh, noise across all of the users. So having enough data is very important. Um, Mislabeled and um, poorly labeled data is a concern, especially because a lot of data sets in industry, in institutes are created by humans. Um, For example, in a warehouse, someone has to put in that uh, code for a certain type of 
item or in a financial center, someone has to put in the code of what kind of loan this is. Um, healthcare, same thing. Someone is, a human is inputting data. And if they make an error in that input, if they mislabel something, then that can be difficult to pick out later on. Um, and this is actually an active topic of research these days, is how to detect whether there has been an error in labeling of data, and then how to correct it. That's the second step. Of course, in order to be able to do that, you need to have a large amount of data, and, and the proportion of the correct labels has to be large. Uh, so there are certain assumptions here. Uh, but this is definitely a current research topic in, for, for many people, is how to identify mislabeled data. You know, your example of your banking example of mm -hmm. trying to um, just, you know, conduct regular business in another country is really interesting. And I, I wonder about, um, you know, if we can kind of step back and look at how we would design uh, that system differently to make sure that didn't happen. What are the kinds of questions that people designing a system should be asking themselves to make sure that they have the right data and that people aren't being um subjected to those kinds of experiences as an outcome. Well, the funny thing is that when that happened to me, I was working, I was employed by a bank. <laughs> so <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe being employed at a bank is not sufficient. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So if you look at how this was done in history, right, you had a banking um, advisor that would sit down with you that would know something about you before they would make this call on whether you should get a credit card or not. And we've replaced that with an algorithm. Uh, but the algorithm is not going to sit, sit with you and ask you and, and doesn't know, you know, your story. Uh, so we have to find a way to get around that. Does that mean that different institutions and countries should share data? Maybe with the customer's consent, you know, maybe I would consent to the credit score organization in France to share their score with... Uh, the Canadian institution. Um, maybe there's a type of data that I allow, allow them to share. Maybe I don't want them to share the actual data, maybe just the score that they have about me. So what I'm leading to here is that I think data sharing is going to become very important. It's already very important. A lot of businesses already share data. I'm sure people have noticed that when they search for something on Google, an ad for that pops up on Facebook or the other way around. If they've discussed something on Facebook and an ad for that pops up when they search for things on Google. So they, data is being shared already at some level. Um, but for services that are you know, actually useful to us, if, if data was shared, that might improve things. Yeah. That, of course, you know, magnifies some of the issues of privacy um, when, when you're sharing data. Yeah, I can see sort of it's like both sides of the coin here. And in some cases, data is being shared where perhaps it's not um, as critical or useful to you, whether that's for, for ads, as you were describing. But in the case of um, your banking story, you might have wanted that information shared so that yeah. you wouldn't have to ha go through all of those challenges and just going about your regular business. Yeah, or actually, if I had a key, like let's say I had my data with me, and I take it with me, and then I go to this a new credit institute in a new country, and the data is notarized or certified in a way that it is authentic, and I can share this information with them willingly, um, you know, that would be ideal. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> we'll have to develop that. Yeah. <laughs> Now, there are some people that say, you know, all of these ethical issues that um, 
AI in AI stem from the idea of, of data, if we had better data, if we had more representative data, if we had data that had less historical baggage, then we could fix all of these AI ethics issues. Do you think it's possible to have unbiased data? What are your thoughts on that? My immediate thought is that no, it's not possible. So data is curated by humans. In a lot of cases where fairness is an issue, this is data that was probably collected in a biased way. When you look at the data that has been used for the studies on recidivism or judicial outcomes or predictive policing, which in some jurisdictions has become very popular, for instance, the pro they, they look for the algorithm to tell them where they should go looking for a crime that's about to be committed. But of course, the input into that is on crimes that they have observed because some human has decided to go there. And that was probably a biased move in the first place. So a lot of the data is collected in a biased manner uh, right now. Um, of course, you know, the ground we sit on is built on history, right? Um, so historically, all of these institutions, platforms, data, they've all been created from some kind of a biased perspective. I don't think we can say that any of it was unbiased. So that kind of exists in the system already. So just having clean data, I don't think it's sufficient. We need to look at the people that are using the data, that are building the algorithms. Are they checking for the right things in their outcomes? Are they checking to make sure that this face recognition system detects dark-skinned people appropriately? Um, you know, that's not necessarily a question of biased data. It's a question of how that algorithm was designed. A lot of times lighting is used as an excuse because, you know, facial uh, recognition platforms don't recognize dark-skinned uh, faces. But it's a question of how the algorithm was designed. You know, it, it should be something that humans that are designing these uh, systems are made aware of. So the popular uh, statement that it's just the data that's biased, and if you had unbiased data, everything would be okay. But I think in a lot of systems, uh, there needs to be an awareness by the humans and an active uh, adjustment by humans to make sure that the outcomes are not biased or, or harmful in any way. Right. Well, let's talk more about the people. Let's talk about uh, the community, the AI community, and the people who make AI, um, because for the most part, it seems like a fairly homogenous group. And I would say that both of us are not typical of the vast majority of people in this field, um, and that there is this lack of diversity that's led to a lot of ethical concerns around representation and narrowing of perspectives. It can also lead to a really myopic way of framing issues. And I just wonder about your own personal experience working in this field. Um, do you have any stories or insights that you can share about how who makes technology impacts the technology that's made? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't have personal anecdotes about this, but indeed, like the face, facial recognition technology I mentioned earlier, which are very good at detecting um, light-skinned faces, but not very good at detecting dark-skinned faces not just detecting them, but making inferences about them after. Um, I can't recall the reference right now, but there was a study done where they, where they developed an algorithm that would uh, look at faces and see what, how likely this person is to be a criminal. Um, and they, as a test, they put in the faces of the U.S. Senate uh, senators. And most of the darker-skinned senators came out as 
being criminal, (laughs) according to this algorithm. So there was clearly something wrong in the way that this algorithm was built. There wasn't the right check that was done. And maybe if there were, if there was a diverse uh, group behind that, they would have checked for it because it would be personal to them. I think it's important in any case to have different perspectives in in the development of a technology. Um, If a technology is you know, only driven by one group, that will be the only group that benefits from it. And it just reinforces the the rich get richer um, idea. So it's definitely very important for the development and design of these technologies to have a diverse group. I don't see that right now. In many of the places I've worked in, I have been the only woman in the lab. Um, (laughs) And and that's not an exaggeration, literally the only woman in the lab. Mm-hmm. So um, that concerns me. If, you know, if it's only one subgroup that's developing algorithms, they're really doing it from their own perspective. Whether the outcome is biased or not, I think is not relevant. It may happen to be for certain applications, but it may not be for other applications. So I think it's important to have a diversity of perspectives in in development of of technology that's as impactful as AI is because it really affects, you know, really all parts of our lives. It's not just, you know, the movie or the book that you're recommended. It's whether you're going to get that loan. Uh, If there are algorithms that are in the judicial process, like there are um, definitely in the U.S. in some places, then this is, you know, pretty impactful on your life, on the future of your life. So I think it's serious enough that it needs to have a diversity uh, of builders. There's also been calls to decolonize AI, um, calls for greater inclusivity, particularly with respect to Indigenous people. I'm just wondering about your thoughts on that. Absolutely. I think computer science in general, but AI in specific, there isn't enough diversity. We were looking at statistics the other day, and I think in our department, under 3% of students are of Indigenous background, and this includes First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and that's very low compared to their presence in the general population. Same thing with women. it actually starts out well in bachelor science programs and computer science even, uh, close to 40%, I think, uh, women. But then by the end of the four years, that number has gone down. And then if you continue that path into grad school, uh, academia, that number goes even lower, uh, down to you know, 10%, 10, 13%. So there's definitely a problem of not only attracting a diversity of talent to this area, but retaining that talent. It's a complex issue for sure. And I think it needs multiple ways uh, of attacking it. It's not just encouraging uh, a diversity of people to enter into the field, but it's also making sure that they're retained. It's making sure that the environment is such that they don't quit one day because they just don't fit in. Right. So I'll just ask you directly, you know, when it comes to the environment, is, is it hostile? Are there things that we could do to make it less so? Like what, it, what specifically needs to change to kind of impact those outcomes in a positive way? Yeah, it's, it's hostile to, in different degrees. Um, in the places that I've worked at, it hasn't been, you know, openly hostile as I've seen in some of the stories that you hear about in the news. 
but it is there's there's a lot of subtle hostility where you don't feel like you belong either because your voice isn't being heard. Um, and this has happened to me. I have been a team lead. I have been a department head, and my voice still hasn't been heard. Uh, so you know, with people that I'm supervising, so uh, it, it's you know, it's easy to say, oh, it's because of your personality. You mm. need to be more this, or you need to be more that. But it's also the other way around. It's also that people don't know, um, and they need to be taught about. Um, how to work in a diverse environment. You know, a few years ago, I used to think, well, an idealist, an ideal way of doing this is having equal of representation um, when people are growing up, when there are children, so that they see it uh, as a natural part of life. You know, like, I, I like the fact that there are these workshops, like Girls Who Code and, and so on, but it's all girls in there. And so they're coding and they're succeeding, but it's among a group of girls. In the real life, that's not what is going to happen. They're going to be in a room of men and they need to be trained to function in that environment. But also the men need to be trained to function in an environment where there are people that are not like them. So I used to think, you know, you know, maybe children should be in, you know, like, for example, a computer science class should have exactly 50-50 so that the boys see that there are, you know, as many girls around them as there are boys that are succeeding. I don't know how to make that happen. Um, I think it's, a, it's an ideal that we should aspire to. But I don't know how to make that happen other than have increased representation so that people see at a young age that there are a diversity of people possible in, the, in these fields. I think somewhere on social media I saw the other day that a little boy had a action figure of Wonder Woman and he thought this was, you know, he thought she was a hero and it was a Wonder Woman. And I, and I thought that's fantastic. That's what should happen, you know, is boys should also see women as uh, aspiring leaders. Um, and I think that that will happen, but in order for that to happen, we need to have representation of these different groups at levels of leadership. Right. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot there to unpack and a lot mm -hmm. of different pieces that need to come together to really make change. Because you're right, it is a complex issue at the end of the day. But but that doesn't mean we shouldn't aspire to do a lot better and to continue working on this. And kind of um, on that note, you know, in the course of my work in AI and ethics, and, and this is totally anecdotal information, um, what I've seen is that there's a lot more women working on topics surrounding ethics. So depending on what study you look at, I've seen the numbers estimated at anywhere between 16 to 20% of women who work in AI research. And, you know, the numbers are much, much higher anecdotally, at least um, that I've seen in terms of women who are working on ethical issues in AI. So I'm wondering if the area of ethics in AI is being framed as a problem that's left to solve for those who are most impacted by it, people who are marginalized by these issues in some way. Yeah, I, I agree. That's what I see, too. Um, a lot of the researchers that I see uh, writing about fairness and bias, uh, for instance, are are from these subgroups, are from these populations that have the most adverse impacts. And I think it's a problem um, because having adverse outcomes for one subgroup is a disadvantage to the entire population eventually. People don't see it that way, but it is a disadvantage to the entire population eventually. 
So it, it is a complex issue and it needs, you know, many different ways of, of getting at it. One way is encouraging whoever is interested, encouraging them to work on these topics. It turns out that right now it's a large percentage of people who are affected by this. Um, but incentivizing others to, to work on this too. I do see the change a little bit. I do see among the youth that people in uh, relatively privileged uh, positions are concerned about equity. I don't know if this is actioned in any way at their level, but I do see in terms of their expressions that they are interested in equity and equality. Um, so that does give me hope. In the next generation, there are people who are not from disadvantaged groups that are interested in making things equal for everyone. And that needs to be encouraged and incentivized in some way. Um, incentivized is, is a bit of a strong word, maybe, because it's not clear how you would do that, but definitely encouraged. Well, sticking with the the younger generation and thinking about your role as a professor, um, I'm curious to know... Um, if you can share uh, a little bit more about the role of education when it comes to addressing ethical concerns in AI, what do you think the role of education is in that? And how do we sort of instill these values into, into students? Yeah, I think educators have a big role in demonstrating what is an important problem, first of all. So if educators are only concerned about improving the efficiency then that's really all that people will learn is as being important. And that's what they will execute when they're working in companies. But if in their education, they understand that this is actually sort of a multi-objective optimization problem. You're not just looking for efficiency in one dimension, but you're looking for efficiency across these different populations. Then that's something they'll keep with them as they go into the workforce and build the services and algorithms. But this has to be presented as a part of the problem, not as an addendum or not as here's an optional ethics course that you must take, <laughs> um, but really as part of just the normal regular teaching. It should be part of, you know, you're, you're teaching, let's say, something about classification tasks. Well, this should be an element that is taught along with that, not at the end of the course, where you say, okay, we've learned about all of these machine learning algorithms. Now these are the issues that are also important. No, I think it should be part of the regular uh, education. And, and in that way, it becomes a normal problem to be looking at, not some special, um, you know, out of the margin kind of a thing. Right. Uh, and, and the other thing is that it, these are challenging problems from a technical point of view, from a mathematical point of view, and that should be used as an attractor to people so that they could work on these problems. Yeah, yeah, it's not an either or. It's, these two things are very integrated, and I, I like how you've described that. We are, we're coming up to the end of our time. I just have a, a couple of more questions for you, just kind of pulling back and thinking a bit more generally. As an AI researcher, what's something that you want the general public to know either about AI generally or specifically about your work? The general public might think it's some far off futuristic idea, but actually it's around you every day today. It is something that's very useful to us. It has improved outcomes in many fields, but it is, you know, a multidimensional technology. It has impacts that we should all be aware of. 
And I think the general public should start having a little bit more of a data literacy. A lot of times people are not aware of what they're looking at. Um, so they, there needs to be some sort of a public information where they understand what AI is, what it isn't. You know, it's not Terminator, um, for instance, but it is that search algorithm that you just searched, you know, for puppies or, or whatever on. Um, so I think that understanding might be missing for some people. And, you know, it, it's a multifaceted technology. There are uh, great strides in it that benefit us, but there are also outcomes that we should be wary of and that we should look out for. And that includes things like, you know, ethical issues like privacy, uh, fairness, uh, transparency. And um, there's there's a sense of sort of like this mystical idea about AI. And I wish that people would understand that it's not. It is a technology and it could be used for multiple purposes, just like any technology. And this is what people should be aware of. How is this technology being used on me? And how am I using this technology? And just kind of thinking about that from a regulatory standpoint and considering some of the issues that we've been talking about today, what about the role of policy and regulation? What do you think needs to happen there in terms of addressing some of the issues we've been discussing? I do think policy and regulation has a big place in the development of AI. And this is not anything unique to AI. This has happened before. You know, we see warning signs on cloth irons that you shouldn't iron while you're wearing your clothes. And that's, you know, because a consumer protection agency at some point thought that this technology can be harmful. Uh, and in the same way, we should have that for AI products and AI services, uh, for builders of AI even. You know, these are the harms that could uh, happen because of your product. And that's something I don't see today, which I would like to see. Um, I think regulations have a place. A lot of people are afraid of regulations because they think, oh, that's going to tie my hands. I can't do any research. But I think that's not true. Regulations really define a boundary. Okay, this is something you can't do. You can't be, have an outcome that's harmful to, to humans. Um, and that's pretty clear. <laughs> um, so, so I do think regulation has a place. And a good example is the GDPR in, in Europe, which was uh, very helpful in the sense that companies that were multinational companies actually decided to change uh, when they when they made changes for Europe because of GDPR, they sort of made changes across the board. So some other countries also benefited a little bit from GDPR. So GDPR is, is a nice example because it outlines directives. It outlines how, you know, how data can be used. It even it has nice ideas. I don't know to the extent of which these ideas were actually implemented. Uh, for example, one nice thing I saw in there was, um, I can't remember the term exactly, but it's something like a data officer. Um, you know, someone that would kind of check that the data was used correctly. I mean, you have police officers that protect the physical security of people and things, you know, why not a data police officer that checks, you know, the data security, you know, checks your security um, in terms of data. Uh -huh. So I think there's some, there's a lot of nice ideas in there um, in, in, in regulation and policymaking that, uh, that we could all benefit from. That makes so much sense. And that sounds like a really interesting possible new role that we might see. Just before we close, um, 
I'd like to know what's next for you personally. Um, what are you working on, either in terms of your research, in your work at Amy? We didn't talk too much about the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute, but you're a fellowship, you're a fellow there, um, or in the classroom. What's next for you? Yeah, so in research, I'm really excited about several uh, research topics that I'm working on, um, applying differential privacy and methods of differential privacy for uh, for machine learning algorithms that we haven't done yet. Like, for instance, a lot of data is used in sort of a connected format. Uh, a lot of machine learning algorithms assume that data is independent. You know, my data is independent from your data. But when you look at uh, sources of data like social networks, for example, uh, we generate our own data, but we're also connected. And that's not incorporated in privacy techniques. And that can be a big issue because if you've got data dependency, that could increase the amount of noise you have to add, according to differential privacy. Um, so there are uh, there's a lot of research that needs to be done to see how we can efficiently make these methods uh, private when data is not independent. I talked about data sharing earlier. Um, a lot of new ways of businesses doing business together is by data sharing. And for privacy matters, a lot of them say, okay, well, let's create a synthetic data set and share that. Well, just creating a synthetic data set is not sufficient. That's not necessarily private because it maintains certain patterns that allow you to infer uh, something about people if you're able to correlate that with a known data set. Um, so I'm looking at how we can create synthetic data sets that are also private. Um, I'd like to look at how privacy and fairness interact. So, for instance, um, some of the sensitive attributes that are important for fairness and, and bias uh, might be perturbed by the privacy methods. So, is that a problem? Is that, does that help the outcome of fairness or does that make it worse? Um, so, there are a lot of questions like that that I'm interested in exploring. Um, you talked about Amy. Um, Amy is a great uh, place to be associated with because it does um, do a lot of good work in connecting research with business. Uh, so, so it serves as a nice connector to local Alberta businesses that want to uh, develop their AI capabilities. Um, so I find that to be a great resource. Um, and in terms of classroom, um, I wasn't teaching this term but I'm teaching all of my courses next term. Uh, and I'm pretty excited about it because I'm offering a graduate class on privacy and fairness uh, where we'll look into not only definitions of fairness and how to achieve fairness, but what the new research topics are in, fair, in, in privacy and fairness. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that class um, because I'm hoping that that will eventually turn into uh, a class that I can teach at the undergrad level as well. Um, and maybe in the future there, there can be sort of a version for non-computing scientists or non-AI specialists to understand how um, ethics play a role in AI. Wow. That sounds like a very full plate and yes. all super interesting projects. I just want to say thank you so much for being here today, for sharing uh, your work and your own personal story. Thank you so much. And thank you for the conversation. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society, a signature research area at the University of Alberta, and the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforSociety.ca and the Cool Institute 
at kiosk.ualberta.ca. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Dr. Scott Smallwood and the Sound Studies Institute for providing recording space. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforsociety.ca. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com.